Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will will fear him. Whatever is has already been and what will be has been before. And God will call the past to account. This is the word of the Lord. What's great to be with you. Welcome again to In Town Church. Uh, We're continuing in our series uh, called Dark Grace, and this morning we're looking at time, the idea of time in the book of Ecclesiastes. And as we begin, uh, if you would, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for giving us a book that does justice to our situation, that wrestles with the very same issues that we wrestle with. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, believing, doubting, confident, confused, Would you let us find our questions in this passage? Would you let us find you naming the places of longing in our lives? And let us find in this difficult book the healing, the meaning, the hope, the answers that we all long for. Father, this is a a dark passage. And even though it is dark, I pray that you would, through that darkness, shine light. Give us light to continue living. Give us light that gives us hope. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as I was reading the passage, were you singing along? Were you remembering the birds singing that song, Turn, Turn, Turn? You probably were if you're older than, you know, 20 or 30. Uh, It was one one of the most famous passages in the Bible, and it was actually Pete Seeger who set it to music early on. The birds added a couple of lines, the notable Turn, Turn, Turn chorus, and it became a hit. In fact, it's the oldest hit in the history of humanity because it's maybe 2,500 years old. It's uplifting. It's inspirational. It's rousing, and it became this anthem of the anti-war movement. There's a time for everything, they reasoned, and we've had war. Now it's time for peace. What's well, a fine message. It's a great message, but it's not at all what Ecclesiastes is saying. Kohelet, who's the teacher, the preacher, or the poet in this case, 
isn't giving a justification for all the various activities mentioned. He's not saying that all of these things have their place in a full life or in a, a functioning and healthy society. Instead, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you're probably knowing where I'm going with this. Instead, look at how time goes around. People are born, they die, they kill, they heal, they go to war, they seek peace, and life goes on and on. When you run into people on Sunday morning or at work events or in the grocery aisle, almost without fail, we say, well, how are you? How's it going? And then we respond with the equally conventional response. I'm good, just busy, so busy. And the unspoken assumption in this is that to be not busy is to be not consequential. But Kohelet is questioning whether our busyness, whether all of our activity is in fact consequential. And he gives us an array of activities here, 14 pairs of seasons with opposite types. And this is what in Hebrew is considered a merism. He's listing the two opposite extremes to include everything in between. You are born and then you die includes all of life. He lists seasons of mourning and dancing, everything in between, every emotion in between, building up and tearing down, seasons of hate and seasons of love. And these seasons, from our perspective, look very different. They feel very different. But he's saying that the differences actually are rather superficial. We're busy, some of us very busy, doing everything in between birth and death, everything under the heavens, everything under the sun. But verse 9, what do workers gain from their toil? And here's that pesky little word again, toil or gain or profit. What do you have left over from all of your busyness? What are you doing today, tomorrow, that's going to outlast you? That's going to matter, ultimately matter. And the question to this, the answer to this rhetorical question, the corner that Coelet continues to paint us into, is nothing. Nothing. We're all doing busy work. And it's the bane of every young student's existence when the teacher doesn't assign any meaningful work but just keeps you toiling along keeps you working in case the principal happens to stick his head in the in the his or her head in the door the teacher at least in the perspective of the student hasn't given them work that is meaningful to learning it's just busy work and like the perceptive student who knows that the teacher has given them busy work Kohelet tells us in verse 11 he has also set eternity in the human heart he's made us enough like him to see the futility of all of our labors and yet not enough like him to do anything about it. My dog Stella, you've, many of you have met her, she doesn't consider the futility of life. She doesn't care. She does the same thing each and every day and if she's fed twice a day, if she has water and if I throw the ball for her and give her attention, she's quote unquote happy. She even looks happy. I think she can actually smile. Maybe the reason that she's happy is because she never thinks to question whether any of her activities actually matter. And sometimes I look over at her, and she's lying there on her back, spread eagle, snoring, without a care in the world. And I actually envy her. 
Because even with food and water, even with a roof over our head, even with employment, with family, with friends, with a relatively comfortable environment, we can still have that foreboding sense that Walker Percy calls being lost in the cosmos. You see, we have the ability to look beyond the immediacies of life. We can consider life from the 36,000-foot level and wonder whether anything we're doing has any lasting value. He has set eternity in the human heart. He's not offering us here a solution. That is, we can see eternity. He's offering us a problem. That is, we can see time. And we can look back on our life and know that our past is just like our present and will be just like our future. He's not saying, well, life is toilsome and meaningless, but you can be happy in spite of that by knowing that you'll spend eternity with God. That may ultimately be true, but that's not the solution that he's giving us. And we all know that life is not that easy. For those of us who know the rest of the story, if you're Christian this morning, we shouldn't be too quick to jump to the New Testament, to leap to Jesus so as to avoid the discomfort of Kohelet's conclusion. We need to sit with this discomfort because it's not just here, it's all through the Bible. If we choose to dis- downplay the dissonance, the confusion, the pain that this world contains and wrap it up into a tidy little eschatological box, that's the way of sentimentalism. And Kohelet isn't interested in quick, f- quick fixes. What he's saying is that God has created in the human heart, in the m- human mind, the capacity to recognize the meaninglessness, meaninglessness of life, but we don't have the capacity of doing anything about it. The opposite response of sentimentalism would be cynicism. That is, we avoid the tension by holding on to our own wisdom, to our own insight as sufficient to make sense of all the chaos and confusion that we see in the world. We privilege our own perspective as the best lens through which to see the world and to provide answers. We end up denying the very limits which Kohelet, the entire Bible, says that God has placed upon humanity. You see, the the path of sentimentalism collapses the distance between us and real life, the grittiness of real life. The path of cynicism collapses the distance between us and God. And we say we are just like him. We can create meaning. But you see, both of these, not one, are dehumanizing. Ecclesiastes is not ultimately a depressing book, but it is ultimately a very humbling book. Kohelet is driving us to the conclusion that we are powerless on our own to create any lasting meaning in this world. NASA released uh, an amazing picture this week. It was the most detailed picture yet of one of the near uh, parts of our universe. And it was amazing. Even looking at it on a small computer screen was uh, staggering. I was awestruck. But then you realize that the photo is really just a representation of what's out there. And more than that, it's just one small part of what's out there. There are billions of other parts of the galaxy just as dense and just as beautiful and just as expansive as that section is. That galaxies have billions of stars and there are billions 
of galaxies. It's staggering. It's amazing. And if they just exist, who are we to think that the little decisions that we make each and every day, the emails that we send, the tasks that we check off, the jobs that we do have any meaning whatsoever? Wouldn't it be incredible hubris to think that our individual choices matter when billions upon billions of stars stare on in indifference? And if that's true, what do we do with these longings that we have? If that's true, what do we do with the longings for ultimate justice, for the ultimate good to prevail over evil? What do we do with our longings for lasting and systemic change in our world and our communities? If the world, if the universe just is and one day will be no more, what do we do? If time, as Coelet says, just marches on and on and on and that all of our work for the good is only an illusion of change, what are we to do? And if we put the macro lens on and draw our perspective down to our own individual stories, what do we do with our everyday frustrations at work? What do we do with the tiring conflicts that we have with our children, our spouse, our friend, our sibling, our parent? What do we do with the aging and the breaking down of our bodies? Or conversely, the joy that we have with the birth of a child. The joy that we have, the delight in seeing a loved one healed from a dreaded disease, only to know that it just prolongs their inevitable march to death. What do we do with this incredible feeling that we have when we see the triumph of someone who is disabled in a certain way, overcoming their physical limitations? These things conjure up notions of transcendence. And how sad would it be if these feelings were just feelings? If these feelings weren't connected with anything lasting, with anything real, with anything permanent? Well, Kohelet gives us one way to cope with that, if that's true. We could just scrap our search and seek to find simple pleasures in the world as it is. We could cope with our cosmic sadness just by pursuing pleasure, and we looked at that somewhat last night. And in this passage in verse 13 is one of the so-called carpe diem passages in Ecclesiastes, that each of them, that is all of humanity, may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. That is, we seek to cope with being lost in the cosmos by simply enjoying what it is, whatever it is we're doing. Have a beer, watch the game, go to the coast, eat at Lardo. All of these things are wonderful. But he's asking, what if that's as good as it gets? What if that's all? There is, And we should be careful to distinguish between escapism and med- self-medication through these means and what Kohelet is offering. Because on one hand, he's affirming that life does in fact offer a variety of ways to, to have pleasure, to bring or to find delight and enjoyment. And we shouldn't shun those things in some sort of false piety because they are in fact, this passage says, they're gifts from God. But it, it's a double-edged sword, you see, because these fleeting pleasures don't last, and you can't take them with you. He's not offering these things as a lasting solution to the meaninglessness of life, but as a way 
when used appropriately, to take the edge off of the fact that we look around at life and nothing actually seems to change, to accept one's lot in life by enjoying simple pleasures. But now, having sat with the difficulty, with the dissonance, not jumping too quickly to the ultimate solution, once we've addressed the dead ends that Kohelet points out, we should remember here that Kohelet doesn't get the last word. He doesn't even get the last word in this narrative, in Ecclesiastes, because as I told you in the first week, there's this framed narrative that the narrator gets the last word. In the first part of chapter 1 and the last part of chapter 12, the narrator weighs in on Kohelet's narrative. And even beyond that, all of Ecclesiastes is framed in a larger narrative. And I argued in the first sermon that Ecclesiastes might have in fact been the very last book written in the Old Testament. The last meditation before the closing of the Old Testament canon and the waiting for the New Testament. Waiting for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of Jesus. And perhaps then Ecclesiastes is there to pull the rug out from every way that we seek to generate meaning on our own. To pull the rug out from under every way that we try to cope with the world as it is. The ways that we maintain illusions of transcendence. So that when the one who is transcendent comes, we'll recognize him. Maybe Ecclesiastes is pulling the rug out from all of the ways that we seek to self-generate meaning so that when the one, when the one who comes who provides and gives meaning arrives, we'll receive it. So maybe the coping mechanism for dealing with the confusion and the meaninglessness of life isn't the sentimentalism that makes light of our circumstances, nor is it the cynicism that aspires to transcend our circumstances by our own initiative by our own creativity but rather the coping mechanism that God gives us is a relationship with him that he is with us that he is for us in a world that is beyond our comprehension beyond our control but not beyond his and that he is at work to bring meaning and bring life where there is none the narrator at the end, in verse 13 of chapter 12, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. And we talked about last week how that's a, a very simple way to sum up the human aspiration, the human experience. The duty of mankind is to know God, to keep his commandments, to follow him. But then he says also in verse 14, For God will bring every deed to judgment. This isn't judgment as we often think of. That is God coming to punish us for our misdeeds. But what judgment is here and what judgment is in most parts of the Bible is him bringing his ultimate justice into the world. And yes, you don't want to be on the wrong side of that judgment, but that's not the point here. What he's saying is it's his bringing of the reconciliation of all things. It's putting an end to the seasons of war and hatred and death once and for all. It's stopping that ceaseless cycle. 
the narrator says a time is coming when this judgment would come to pass, but he never could have imagined what it would look like. Because God's judgment looks like God joining us in the seasons of life. God's judgment isn't him coming to get us, but it's him joining us in our own confusion. It's not God coming to bust some skulls. It's that he is joining us in the pleasures and in the deep distressing realities of life. That God doesn't simply assign these seasons to us to live with under, but in Jesus, he endures them with us. He experiences what it's like to laugh and to weep. He experiences what it's like to uh, the breaking down and the building up. He experiences a time to be born and a time to die. But more than that, he doesn't come just to experience the seasons as they are and will continue to be, but he brings a new season. He brings in something that the merism of Kohelet hasn't considered, something from outside. In Jesus, you see, there's a time to rise. And when he rises, there isn't any longer a time to die. It's no longer eat and drink because one day you will die, but eat and drink with joy because one day you will rise. Eat and drink of me and live. Let's pray. Father, as we confess our faith, as we come to the table, as we eat and drink of you, Father, I pray that we would live. I pray that you would give us new life where there is dying, new hope where there is doubt. I pray that you would give us new confidence that you will, in fact, sum up all things in the person and work of Jesus, that there is room for hope, that, yes, there's despair, and we want to do, give due diligence to that, but yet have joy in spite of it. And I pray that as we partake of your body and blood, that we would do that very thing. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.